Welcome to or welcome back to the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton and the host of this show. I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. As you listen today or to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please act on that and share that episode with them. I'm a firm believer that there is a good reason and a real reason for random thoughts that just pop into our minds. And if we act on them, we or someone else can be greatly strengthened and blessed by those actions. Now, I'm very excited to continue ringing in the year 2020 with a very special 12-week series of the Journey Through Life podcast. This series is called Journey in Recovery. Now, I've interviewed many different people from many different locations and many different backgrounds on one of each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you shut this off and say, this doesn't apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot. I think it will be well worth your time. Whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we all have weaknesses in our lives that we may be the only ones who knows anything about them, but we really wish we could move past them. But try as we will, we have not been able to leave them behind. I have experienced that learning of and applying the 12 steps of recovery can be and is beneficial to any human being who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of those steps into their lives. And I know that they will be able to move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. Now, these behaviors and habits and addictions could include anything from, you know, full-blown drug and alcohol addiction or something as seemingly dumb or silly but just as gripping as putting lip balm on compulsively or popping one's knuckles. Now, last Monday, Step 1 went live with a great conversation with Shannon, the spouse of an alcoholic. In her conversation, we learned that the choices of another who is so closely intertwined with us can leave a massive wake in our lives, and that our actions reverberate in that person's life also. We learned that when we learn to stay in our own lane and clean up our own side of the street and not try to control or force better behaviors on the offending person, then we actually end up finding much more peace in our own lives as well as have a much better opportunity to be of help to the bad guy. Now that was step one. We're admitting that we were powerless over whatever our own behaviors or others' behaviors are, and that our lives had become unmanageable. In other words, we were admitting that us trying the same things over and over again and expecting a different result was, in fact, insanity. Now step two moves on to the next, well, step of recovery. It reads, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, today we will hear the first part of a long and very meaningful conversation I had with Harvey E. in Toronto about step two. Harvey and I became fast friends in this conversation, as I had only had one previous one or two minute conversation with him. I loved the manner in which he discussed step two, in which he openly discussed his own experience in addiction and his own journey in recovery. And I love the way that he related that his sponsor, how his sponsor walked through, walked with him through step two. And I love Harvey. And I think you may also grow to love him and his experiences, strength, and hope as he walks through the depths of hopelessness and powerlessness towards a dim light that was shown him about six years ago. And now that light is bright and full of warmth. This week will be a two-part episode. I will release the second part of it on Thursday, so keep your eyes and ears open for that one, as you don't want to miss either one of these. In this episode and others in this series, you may be introduced to concepts that you have never before considered, or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered truth for perhaps your whole life. But these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible, using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true. While you listen, take mental or physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head. Then, at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now, kick back or hit the road 
or do house or yard work or whatever you do while listening to podcasts and be ready to learn and feel and gain insights like you may have never considered before. Here we go with Harvey and step two. All right, Harvey. Well, I'm really excited to do this. Um, as you well are aware, because you and I have, have talked a little bit about this, I'm excited to do this um, little mini series of the Journey Through Life podcast that I'm calling Journey in Recovery. So Harvey, tell me, introduce yourself to us. And then, and then we'll go a little bit into your background story and, and what's important to you in, in, in recovery. Okay. So I'm Harvey. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic, a good person worthy of recovery, as I like to say. Mm. Um, uh, and that's part of my uh, self-affirmations that I've learned to uh, live with and use on, on a regular basis, uh, most often, as often as I can. Um, I am 65 years old, just celebrated my 65th birthday in September. Awesome. I'm uh, married with uh, five married children, 18 grandchildren, uh, two baseball teams, a Sweet. male and a female baseball team. And I'm, um, I live in Toronto and I practice dentistry uh, because I have to, because <laughs> I have all these children and grandchildren to help out. So I still practice and, uh, you know, I'd like to continue to do so as long as I uh, feel that I'm still uh, being of service and, and helping my patients. So that's that's who I am. That's the basic background. Well, very cool. It's it's neat that you've got, uh, you know, such a big family. And we'll get a little bit into that. I think a little bit later, I want to talk about the family dynamic in recovery and how and how that works in your own life. But I want to talk a little bit about your own story leading up to the, the point where you recognized, you know what, I think I've got a problem and I need some help with it. So I, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to tell you that because uh, okay. I didn't think I had a problem <laughs> mm. or at least I wasn't ready to admit that I had a problem. Um, I actually started with a new therapist in 2014, January. And that first visit with him, um, he actually, uh, he's a therapist outside, out of, out of Houston, uh, Texas, and we Skype, uh, and I still see him. Um, and I, I started with him because I wanted to deal with uh, what was at the time my um, unwanted um, same-sex attraction, mm. um, which had really made my life totally unmanageable. But I didn't know that that was an addiction at the time. But I started with him, and at, on our first visit, and the first visit, I described to him what a typical day in the life of Harvey was, uh, and it included uh, usually at least two visits to escorts in any given day, mm. um, except for the Sabbath, and um, it meant that I had to scream and yell at people in the office to make sure I could get out of the office in time to have enough time at lunch in order to see someone, and then to sneak around on the way home from work in order to start and stop and with someone else again, or perhaps later in the day, it was crazy. And I described this to my, my therapist, my new therapist, and he stopped me in the middle of a sentence. And he says, Harvey, I have to ask you a question. And I said, sure, go ahead, shoot. And he says, if I asked you, is sex a need or a want in your life? What would you say? And I looked at him in, in, incredulously and I said, are you kidding? He says, it's a need. Isn't it everybody's need? Mm. It's like water. It's like air. It's like shelter. It's like touch for babies. I said, I need sex twice a day at least. I would love it even more, but at least twice a day. And he said to me, he says, you know, I think you should try to find a, an S fellowship, which means a sex addict or sexaholic fellowship in Toronto. He wasn't aware of what existed here. Mm -hmm. but he just said, you know, go find yourself a sex addiction fellowship because I think you probably need it. Mm. And that was, that was an aha moment for me because until then, you know, I was 59 years old at the time and I had never, ever had anybody say to me or even discuss the idea of a sex addiction. Wow. So, so how long had you been living that daily process that you were basically sharing there a day in the life of Harvey? How many years had that been going on? Oh, probably around 20. Wow. Right. 
Well, that's, that's quite the aha moment to, to wake up to, to have somebody suggest that. So what was your initial reaction when he suggested, Hey, go check out an S fellowship group and just see what, uh, what you think about that. What was your initial reaction to that both emotionally and verbally? So, um, I had been through some therapy in the last year and a half before that. Uh, and we had never, ever touched on this topic. It was like, it was like, what, <laughs> what about, what about John? How come John never mentioned this, you know? Mm. And so that it was a little bit, I was a little stunned. Uh, but at the same time, I knew that at the age of 59, my life was totally, totally a hurricane. It was, I was living a tornado and um, I couldn't live like this anymore. Mm. Um, so I was prepared to believe and to trust this man. We had a really good first connection. Um, he, he's, a, he's a strong faith-based person like myself. Uh, he's a little bit older than me, but he has a family. He's also same-sex attracted. Mm. Um, and he also had been through a sex uh, addiction therapy work, 12-step program. Mm-hmm. So we really hit it off. Uh, and I immediately felt a connection that, that this man, you know, had, had walked my walk, had talked my talk, and uh, I, I felt trust. Hmm. So I just said, you know what, I've got to believe that he knows what he's talking about. I'm going to go. Hmm. What was it like leading up to that first meeting? Was there fear to walk in that door? Was there hesitation? And then let's talk about that first meeting. Yeah, so... Uh, in Toronto, uh, the essay meetings, um, the essay website uh, at the time did not offer any information on where meetings were. Hmm. It was very cloak and dagger. You had to leave a message on a phone call, on a phone number, and wait for someone to call you back. And you had to leave your number. Hmm. That was scary. So I did it. I did it. Uh, but I, I, again, now I was on the waiting. I was waiting. In the meantime, uh, there was a different S uh, group. Uh, that did publish its meeting list and its addresses. So uh, that night, the next day, actually, I made plans to go to a meeting. Hmm. And I showed up. In, it was January. So I had my hat on and I had my coat on and I took none of that off. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> I sat right. in my coat and I sat in a room with 30, 32 people in the room. Thereabouts. Wow. It was a big meeting. A big group. Um, all male except for one woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was scary. Um, I actually did, uh, say my name mm. and I did say that I think I'm a sex addict. Um, and that was about all I said. I did not share during the meeting. There was a reading. I don't even remember what it was. I knew at the end of that meeting that I wasn't going to go back to that fellowship. Mm. It was, uh, a fellowship that, that was not, it did not have a strong definition of lust and a definition of sobriety mm. and uh, and I needed that I, I realized right. that I needed that and in the meantime SA the SA phone person called me back and uh, interestingly enough if I had stayed in that room that I was in for that meeting at 6 30 on a Sunday I would have uh, at eight o'clock there was an SA meeting oh wow <laughs> but I didn't know <laughs> so right. I didn't get to it but I started going the next day. Uh, there was a lunch meeting that I started going to regularly. And I started, uh, I started my journey. Wow. So your, your experience of going in, you know, and trying to keep as anonymous as possible, you know, wearing the coat protected, wearing the hat, keeping it on. I think that's a fairly common experience for people going into a meeting for the first time. What would you, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who is, you know, just either been told by somebody else, you might have a problem or has come to their own realization. Um, my life is completely unmanageable and I need to get help. So I need to reach out. What, what advice would you give to them in walking into a meeting for the first time? The truth is as an addict, I wouldn't have trusted anybody. (laughs) I don't know if I could have really given you any advice. Uh, I, I think the I guess if you knew somebody that you could go with, it would probably be nice to have someone to, to be there beside you, hold your hand if that's necessary. But short of that, uh, I mean, when I got into this program, I, I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust God. I didn't trust anybody. And, you know, it was, it was a leap of faith uh, to believe that 
this therapist knew what he was talking about and he thought this was really important. And I was, I, you know what? I, I really didn't think that I had the luxury of time on my side. Mm. And I knew at the age of 59, if I didn't get this now, I was never going to get it. Mm. So you were, I mean, once that light was flipped on, the hey, you might have an addiction here. You were ready, 100% ready in your own heart and mind to do whatever it took to take those steps, it sounds like. Yeah, I had, I had stopped acting out every day for probably 30 or 40 years, Yeah, right? Every yeah. day I said, this is the last time. This is the last orgasm I'm ever going to have. This mm. is the last, uh, you know, experience I'm ever going to have like this. I'm never doing this again, mm. you know, only to start again the next day. Right. Or even the same day. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've, I've heard and experienced that many times myself. Very powerful. Um, so, I mean, we're going to talk and focus a little bit more on step two. But getting to step two, you have to recognize a step one. And you've alluded to it. Your life's become unmanageable. Tell me what step one means and meant to you at that time. Yeah. So um, I actually wrote a few things down here just so I should uh, I should get that feeling and you know, I'll be able to explain it a little bit clearly. In my experience, you know, and in the work I do with others, uh, I have decided that I have found that there's there are really two sides of the unmanageability. Uh, there's the external unmanageability and then there's the internal unmanageability. And the external unmanageability are things like you lost your wife, you lost your job, you got caught watching porn in the office, uh, you uh, behaved badly with a patient, or, mm. you know, you did something outside of yourself. You know, you lost your, you, you, you screwed up at school, you didn't graduate, you, you messed up your courses, whatever. Mm-hmm. All of those things. And many of us have experienced more, more or less of that. We lost a lot of money. Uh, you know, there's, those are all external unmanageabilities. And then there's the internal unmanageability. And the internal unmanageability, I think, is common to all addicts, whereas the external ones are going to be different because you may or may not be married. You may or may not get caught, you know, in a park, God forbid, or in a bathroom, in a subway station, or whatever might have happened to any, that person. There's all kinds of stories. Right. But internally, I think we all share that many of the same kinds of feelings of... Uh, People describe, uh, I certainly felt uh, empty. I felt that there was a hole in my heart where there should have been something spiritual or something special there. Uh, I felt isolated. I felt apart. Uh, I couldn't become a part of. I was apart from. I, I could feel alone in a room with 200 people. Yeah. Uh, I, I felt uh, lost. I felt insane. I felt that I lost, I had lost my ability to make good choices. Mm. You know, I felt like an animal, like I had no choice, that, I, that there was instincts working in me that, that did not allow me to be, you know, to make good choices as a human being. My moral compass was in the toilet. You know, I, I, could, I, I, I didn't know right from wrong half the time. And, mm. and I would put myself into dangerous places in order to get my, my next fix, mm. you know, I, was, I, I was spending a, sh- a lot of money and, and completely divorced from, from a relationship with my wife, with my children. Uh, it, it was really insane. You know? mm. So those are the internal things that I think are common to, uh, to every addict to some extent. Yeah. You know? And then there was powerlessness. I knew that I had tried you know, more religious uh, behavior, uh, more fasting, more testimonies, more, you know, all of those things that, uh, you know, I had tried uh, not keeping money in my pocket uh, so mm. that I wouldn't have money to spend on, on, on escorts or, or bathhouses or whatever. And mm-hmm. I, I had tried self-awareness things. I had tried uh, promising myself. I had pro- there was, there's lists that go on and on and on of all the things that I tried. Uh, and I realized that none of them worked for any length of time. Mm. You know, so I, I hope that answered that. No, that does. And I just want to read from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous what step one says. It says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and we can substitute alcohol for lust, lust in this Say case. Lust. Exactly. So we admitted we were powerless, powerless over lust 
and that our lives had become unmanageable. So those are two, the powerless and the unmanageable are two things that you really address there. Now, tell me what, how, how the word powerless came to your mind and to, as, as the first time you read this, this first step, I'm powerless over lust and my life's become unmanageable. Had you grown up? Well, maybe I'll share my opinion of it previously. The word powerless was such a weak word and there was no way in the world that I would ever admit that I'm powerless over anything. You know, if I can believe it, I can achieve it. Those types of things were so ingrained into my mind or, you know, if there's a weakness in, in your life, it's your fault, which, you know, whatever. But that word powerless was such a negative meaning word to me that when I first read these things, I was actually pretty angry. I was like, I am not powerless over anything. My life's unmanageable. Absolutely. But this powerlessness. And it wasn't until I understood things more clearly that powerless meant something to me. Tell me your experience with that word. Is it somewhat similar to what I've shared? I, I think so. Um, being faith-based, I think that's really what you're describing uh, is how I felt. Uh, if I felt that I, was, I had failed at being able to control this, it was a lack of faith. It was a lack of, uh, you know, not just, just not doing enough of what God would have wanted me to do or what my religion would have wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. And having to admit that I was powerless you know, in a society where uh, certainly American Canadian society, we're so, we're so, you know, trained and wired to uh, never surrender, never Mm -hmm. give up, you know, fight to the finish, the last guy standing, you know, never put up the white flag. So to, to admit that I have to say that I'm powerless, like you say, was something, I don't know if I got angry, but I certainly did not like the idea. Mm. did not sit well that that's just a a very powerful part of this is that admission of powerlessness anyway so um is there anything else on step one or any of your background story that you feel like you want to share a little bit more on before we jump into step two and and talk a little bit more about that so yeah, I would just say, um, you know, when you get to step two, we're going to quickly get there. And the one word that really sticks out in step two is that, you know, we, we understand that, that a power greater than us can restore us to sanity, can relieve us of this insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it really becomes very important for, for the addict to be able to reflect on and, and express and appreciate and stop denying their insanity. You know, insanity as uh, I think, is it Einstein or that uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Right. That was me. That was me, you know, and, and I, I had never wanted to admit that I'm insane because here I am at 59, you know, and, reasonably successful in as you know in spite of my addiction i managed Mm -hmm. to raise family have a home i wasn't you know on the street behind some building drunk or lost or something you know i I had a practice i had a house i had a car i had a family you know my wife hadn't thrown me out Mm. it was you know I, i hadn't really experienced a lot of the external unmanageability but i knew that i was living an insane life i knew i was insane and I think it's really important to appreciate the insanity of where I was and where we are in addiction in order to appreciate what, what, what our second step is going to be and what God can do, yeah. you know, or whoever that is, your, your God, right. your power, your higher power, as you call it, whatever. Right. And, and step two reads, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So tell me that, that process for you of the coming to believe that a power greater than yourself, God, in your in your case, and in my case, brought you to that point. So I I think that when you when when I did a my first step and I did it at a meeting uh, with several people who I'll never forget. Mm. Uh, I think one of the uh, the most profound moments in uh, in the life of an addict as they come into recovery is sharing a first step in a room with other addicts who are there for you, who can appreciate where you've been. As I said before, you know, walk the walk, talk the talk, 
um, have made you feel comfortable, safe. Mm. Uh, and I think safety is a, is a huge word in the work that we need to do. Um, so, so before we move to the next thing here, I want to stop there for just a second. For someone who's listening who may not be ready to walk into a meeting or may not have an addiction themselves, but may have a loved one with an addiction, what does a, doing a first step in a meeting, in a group, look like? All right. Yeah. So doing a first step is, is basically coming to a meeting, sitting down with uh, other people who are in, you know, the other addicts and um, having prepared a, a document that you read um, that describes your progression, your life since you were a, off, often a very little boy, but certainly a, a little girl, a young person and uh, how your early sexualization might have occurred, uh, how you might have found lust as your drug of choice mm-hmm. uh, instead of alcohol, instead of drugs, mm-hmm. instead of gambling, instead of anger, instead of workaholism, because there are, there's many, many drugs of choice. Uh, you right. know, uh, today there's uh, video games and there's uh, news feeds and uh, yeah. all kinds of different things that people become addicted to. Why I chose lust is has to do with my early sexualization. Hmm. Um, I think I was first addicted to comic books. You know, I would use comic books to escape, you know, and I was Superman and I was living in the fortress of solitude out in the Arctic somewhere. Hmm. Uh, and I would fly away because my house was so crazy and I needed to escape. You know, and then I found my body and that was, that was a lot more fun. Uh, so right. I ended up, you know, lust was where I ended up. And in, in fact, in same sex lust was my, uh, was my template and continued to be through my life. So I go to a meeting and I sit down and I describe my life. And, and it shouldn't be what we call a sexologue. It's not just supposed to be, uh, you know, a chronological description of how my disease manifested and continued to progress. And, and I got deeper and deeper and further and further along and went down deeper into mm-hmm. the hole. Uh, that, that's certainly part of it because I need to express that. I need to appreciate that it's getting worse because mm. addictions get worse. We progress. The amount of drug that I needed when I was 14 is nothing like what I needed when I was 44 or right. 54. Uh, so it definitely is a progression uh, and I need to appreciate the progression. Um, I think what I really needed to, pr- to appreciate is, is the emotional changes and the emotional feelings that I had around uh, how my life got more and more out of control. Mm. We talk about uh, one of the things that you really want to hear in a first step is how many times uh, that person, that addict, crossed a line that he never, ever believed he would ever cross, you know, the bound, there's a line that says, I'm never, ever going to pay for sex. Mm-hmm. I'm never, ever going to go to a bathhouse. And then you, you go and then you turn around and you look on the ground and the line is, has disappeared, never to be seen again. You can't jump back over it again. You're there. And, and that's, that's one of the things that, that the first step, you know, is supposed to help us see and, and become aware once and for all of how powerless we've been, how many different ways we tried to stop and were unsuccessful for any length of time. And some of us have had moments and periods of time when we managed. Um, Mine were very small, uh, very Mm. short and pretty much not there. Others have had better experiences, um, Mm -hmm. better. Uh, And and certainly the unmanageability and how crazy my life feels and how unmanageable, as we described before, inner or the outer, external unmanageabilities. No, I, that's that's really helpful. That description of doing a step one, I think, and and it's similar in all of the different fellowships. I'm, you know, sure that uh, you know you share your your progressive uh, relationship with that addiction, whether it's alcohol or gambling or whatever else that we that we uh, can experience here. So tell me now about. Let's move into step two. Tell me, tell me that process, and then why step two is so meaningful to you in your life. Okay. So once I was able to come to terms with my unmanageability, my powerlessness, and my insanity, um, I was very fortunate to find uh, a sponsor. Uh, And I think this is, again, a key to the success of anyone in this program. Um, It's really, really critical, I believe, 
to find a sponsor that has what you're looking for. If you don't feel the hope in the rooms or especially in your sponsor and you can't trust or respect that person for it, you're not going to find what you're looking for. Mm. And uh, in my case, after eight months of sitting in meetings in Toronto, I actually went to an open cocaine anonymous meeting. And the person who was running that meeting was a man named Cameron. And Cameron ran a, a tremendous meeting and he just had a light on behind his eyes. Mm. And I sensed that light on behind his eyes. And I had not seen that light in anyone that I had met in the fellowship to that point. And I went up to him after the meeting and I shook his hand and I said, Cameron, that was an incredible meeting and I'm not letting go until you promise to be my sponsor. Wow. And even though he wasn't a lustaholic, he wasn't, he wasn't actually a sexaholic at all. He was mm -hmm. a cocaine and alcoholic, uh, cocaine addict and, a, and an alcoholic, sober over 20 years. Uh, he agreed to be my sponsor because he can appreciate addiction even though he wasn't a sex addict, he understood exactly the emptiness that I was feeling, all the inner, all the inner stuff that's, I think, common for every addict, the restlessness, the unmanageability, the discontentedness, mm -hmm. you know, the difficulty that I had with interpersonal relationships. You know, I couldn't control my emotions. I couldn't, you know, I felt useless. I was full of fear. Those things are common, I think, to everybody. And he, you know, and he, and he agreed to be my sponsor. So when I finished my first step, you know, the next step, it, it's, it's, it really isn't so hard to get to most of the time. I, I think it's harder. It was harder for me to get to a step two than, than a person with no, with less religious behind background. Hmm. Um, I, I thought I had God. Because mm. uh, I lived in a, in a faith-based experience. Uh, I, I'm an Orthodox Jew. And as such, it was, I, I believed that I, that I was living according to God's word and the Bible and the commandments. And, uh, you know, I ate kosher and, I, went, and mm -hmm. I kept Sabbath and I went to, you know, Rosh Hashanah, New Year's and all of that stuff. And mm -hmm. so it was a little hard for me to believe that, you know, I needed to, you know, God's going to do this for me. I've been praying to God for 40 years. He hadn't done anything for me, mm. you know, and, and uh, my relationship to God was so, as it turns out, so dysfunctional, but I, I needed to be able to get to that point. And, you know, reading the second step, I said, what do you, you know, the, my first point was, what do you mean? Why hasn't he done it for me yet? You know, mm. he could have relieved me from, you know, it's kind of like, the Wizard of Oz, you know, Dorothy and, and, and Glinda, the good witch coming down. And, and she says, you know, you've always had the power to go home. Mm. And she says, well, why didn't you tell me? And she says, you had to learn it for yourself. Mm, I like that. That's what I guess I had to do. I had to learn it for myself. I had a sponsor who could guide me and help me get there. But I, I really needed to find it for myself. You know, and it's in my own backyard. How did that experience of finding God for yourself happen in your life? So uh, my, my sponsor helped me with that. Uh, he, he does a process kind of uh, that. It's a two-part two process. He believes that we need to fire the old God hmm. and then hire the new God. And, and, huh. and he, you know, because obviously I had a God that was not working for me. And, and, it, and it's hard to do that at the beginning because, you know, it sounds uh, awfully disloyal or somehow right. blasphemous almost to mm -hmm. imagine that I'm going to fire God. You know, I mean, my gosh, how can you do such a thing? But, you know, so he, he, he described to me, he asked me to tell me, he asked me to tell him, you know, what my God was like. What kind mm -hmm. of God did I have? I wrote down, that's what I have right in front of me here, uh, a list of what God was like for me. And, and my God was angry, abusive, inattentive. He was shaming. He was abandoning. And in many ways, scary as it might seem, he was impotent because he couldn't, couldn't really help me. Mm. He didn't seem to be able to help me. And, and all of those things are, are pretty scary thoughts about a God. Yeah, how can you rely on a God like that, right? Well, and what's even more so is that until you find 
the other God, which I have to hire, which is mm-hmm. the second half of my story. I need right. to fire that one. And then of course I need to hire one because I can't, obviously step two is looking for me to find a higher power right. who can restore me to sanity. I have to have one, but I have to have one that in turn, in fact, has the opposites of all of these attributes so that I can actually surrender and have trust Mm. in that God because step three is going to request of me that I surrender and I, right. I turn over my will and my life to, to the God who cares. Right. And I just finished saying my old God didn't care. Yeah. No, he was supposed to be my concierge. The way I describe it is I had a God, I was the Harvey hotel and he was my concierge downstairs in the lobby and I would go to him and I'd say, can you get me tickets for the show? Or, you know, can you book me a room in a, you know, a, a restaurant, uh, you know, a table in a restaurant down the street or whatever. What it, you know, as you can imagine a concierge. And that's kind of the way I treated God. I expected him to, you know, snap, I'd snap and he'd jump. And of course, if he didn't jump, he was impotent, you know, right. or, or I wasn't, I wasn't worthy. Mm. Really where I went because. Right. The shaming part of what you said. Exactly. Right. Uh, obviously I have failed, right. I'm not strong enough. I'm not religious enough. I'm not devout enough. I'm not contrite enough, whatever it is, you know, I don't have enough contrition. I don't have enough, whatever. I'm, I'm not, not worthy of, of restoration, <laughs> atonement, whatever religious wording you want to use. Right. I'm not worthy. Right. Mm. And, and therefore God has abandoned me. Right. And he's not answering me because I I have turned him into Santa Claus. Mm. Right. God was my Santa Claus. Right. Mm. And this is the time of the year. Right. So we. Right. 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 So be good for goodness sake. Right. You know, (laughs) he knows if you're bad or good and be good for goodness sake. Right. And uh, I know, you know, that sounds weird coming from a nice Jewish boy. But (laughs) no, no, I get it. That's that speaks to me. So, yeah. So uh, I had to get rid of all of that. Because God isn't, doesn't love me conditionally at all. And, and I often ask my sponsees today, you know, how does God feel about you before you ask for atonement? Before you go to confession? Before you ask to repent? Before you admit you were wrong? How does he feel about you then? And I know what the answer used to be for me. He thought I was a piece of crap. And then if I did all those good things and repented or atoned or whatever you want to say, you know, he might turn around and have give me grace. But in my case, it had been so many years since that, since I believed that I was worthy of any grace. Uh, I in fact was so far along in my addiction that I truly believed that God had so long ago left me alone And he, in fact, had left me as the warden of my own personal prison so that I was here to punish myself. So powerful. So now there's there's the God that you were in the process of firing. And I'm sure that's a painful, painful process. Now tell me the process from firing to hiring a new God. What what happened there? Again, my, my sponsor likes to actually sit down and take take a piece of paper, Harvey, and write an advert looking to hire God, mm. right? Just like you would if you were going to hire a secretary mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or a dental assistant or whatever I would do. He says, you're going to hire God. What would you like God to be? How would you like to imagine God would be, right? So, of course, you know, we have all the cliched words of omnipotent, omniscient, you know, which, mm-hmm. which is part of the, the, the Judeo-Christian ethic, you know, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, omnipresent was a hard one for me because, of course, I didn't think of him as omnipresent for me mm. uh, of all those years. So that was that one I had to, to, to push, you know, a little mm. bit and say, yeah, I really would like him to be omnipresent, mm. you know. And as much as I could believe that even in spite of everything I had been through and lived as, uh, in my addiction, you know, I knew I had food in my belly. I had shirts, I had clothes on my back. I had gas in my car. I had a roof over my head. 
so uh, I did believe that externally he had cared for me in spite of all of that, right? What I didn't believe is that he cared about the inside of me, right? And I like to put it as, um, you know, today I understand that God really cares about how Harvey's doing in the sandbox of life. Hmm. And I go back to that because as a, a lot of this is inner child stuff as anybody in therapy will tell you, right? Um, you know, going to a park and playing in the back in, in the park and playing in the sandbox and appreciating that your parent cares if, if they are that kind of person, you know, they want to know how you're doing in the sandbox. Did you have friends? Did they bully you? Was it fun? Did anybody throw sand in your eyes? You know, how did that go? You know, how are you doing in the sandbox of life? And I needed to find that God. So I wanted a God who was going to be there with me and care about how I played in the sand and how, how I was managing with my friends, with my wife, with my children, with my patients, with my friends in my community. That was, that was really something that I had at this point really not experienced. Hmm. And that was something new for me. That's the hiring I needed to do. I needed to hire somebody who worked 24 seven, no, no breaks. Uh, that was part of having to give up being God. Cause I, you know, part of the first step, I think we should go back quickly for that mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. is um, because of low self-esteem, which I think is a, is one of the uh, core beliefs, core parts of a, of an addict. I think we all share that low self-esteem it's inversely proportional to the ego that I need to present in order to get by and to be able to live my life. And part of that ego is this grandiosity that pretends and acts kind of like God. You know, I want to run the show. Mm -hmm. I have to run the show. I have to to. control everything because otherwise I don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm controlling, I'm God, you know, so God and I were partners in the old days. So I've given up that partnership. Thankfully, um, I sit in the back seat of the bus, as they often talk about in addiction world. You right. know, I let God do the driving and I had mm. to do that. I had to say, you know what? I'm going to hire you to do the driving and I'm going to let you do the driving. Um, and I have to tell you, I'm still in spiritual kindergarten in a lot of ways. And part of that manifestation is, you know, I sit in the back seat and I'm really okay with that. But every so often I lean over the <laughs> seat and I check out the GPS. Mm. Where, where the hell are you taking me, God? <laughs> you know, so that's, that's still where I'm at. You know, yeah. I have faith that he's ride, driving the bus and I'm, I'm usually okay with it. Every so often I wonder like, where, like what the heck, you know? Yeah. Why are you doing this, you know? Mm-hmm. So I have to get to acceptance and appreciate that, again, mm. the, the, the God that I found in step two, which was, again, somewhat I needed to hire, was a God that loves me unconditionally and he loves me so much that everything in my world is for my best, whether I understand it or not. So in this hiring process, um, first of all, about how many candidates did you interview as you went through this process before you, you hired this new God as we, it it almost sounds sacrilegious or blasphemous (laughs) to talk about it this (laughs) way, but, but I totally get where you're coming from. I'm really grateful for this perspective of it. So tell me about that. How many candidates did you interview in this process? I'm still interviewing. I think sometimes I hired the only one who, who showed up. Mm. Um, You know, there was only one God who, who actually showed up for me. Mm. Um, But I think that I, um, him and I are like, as I said, you know, when I go over to look at the GPS, what I'm really doing is, questioning whether I really want to continue to have him working for me, you know, or, or to keep continue to have that relationship. And it's, and, and you know, and I, I don't want to do that. So I, I rehire him on a mm. daily basis. I think mm. on a daily basis. I like that. I think so. Now, how has this revisioning or re understanding of God affected your own understanding of your faith tradition or maybe clarified things or reinforced things even, you know, T- tell me about that little process there. So in Orthodox Judaism, uh, I, I was actually not brought up in a, in a religious world. I got there 
um, soon after my father uh, took his own life when I was 12. Mm. Um, so I, I, I became more religious and I, I picked up uh, a religious uh, following, you know, connection uh, as a teenager. But my, you know, the prayers were very rote. Uh, the connection that I had, I mean, I prayed three times a day, but I don't think I really understand much of what I was saying. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a very personal relationship. Mm. Um, so the, I think the, the, probably the most profound difference uh, in my life today is appreciating the, the personal touch, the personal connection. Um, I, I know today, uh, having done all the steps, and you know, when you get to step 11, you learn about prayer and meditation. Uh, meditation is something I picked up really early on. Uh, my sponsor asked me to start doing it even before I started step one. It was one of the step zero things that we did. Mm. He describes it as, uh, you know, if you want to have a relationship with anybody, God included, if you're doing all the talking, you're a dictator, right? So part of a relationship that you want to have with God is, or whoever that higher power is, I call Mm -hmm. him God. You know, you have to talk and then you have to shut the hell up and listen. Mm. And, And I think that's what meditation is. And the other thing is I have to talk and I have to talk in a language that I understand because of course, before I open my mouth, God knows what I want to say. So I'm really talking to him so that I can really appreciate what I need and what I want from him and, mm. and, the, and the nature of the relationship that I'm looking for because he doesn't need that help. He knows exactly what's going on in my head, you know, but I need to know what is going on in my head. So when mm. I speak to him and, I, and I'm vulnerable and I'm open and transparent and, and I'm weak and, or, or strong or whatever, and I'm able to say what's on my mind, that's brand, that was very brand new for me. That was not mm. something that in my religious background I had ever done. Uh, you know, my, my very far first sponsee was a, actually my second sponsee, my second sponsee was a uh, evangelical pastor. And, and I thank him every day for having taught me how to do intentional prayer. Because mm. I didn't know how to do intentional prayer. That's really cool. And I've, I want to stop there and talk a little bit more about the, I guess, the religious um, actions taken. I'm assuming you still pray three times a day. And a lot of those physical mm-hmm. um, manifestations of your religion are still there, just like they have been for decades and decades. But it's a different approach from you, right? It, it means something totally different. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? For sure. For sure. I mean, uh, I still pray, as you say, I still pray three times a day. I'm still as careful about what I put into my mouth. I'm still careful about my prayer time, my blessings, the before eating, after eating, all of the things that I did uh, all my life, uh, I still do. And it's interesting that you brought that up because, you know, there was that moment when I do that firing, when, you know, when we talked about firing God, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, many people experience this feeling of blasphemy, this feeling of disloyalty and, and almost feel that, you know, Oh, I'm giving up my religious faith. I'm, I'm, mm. I have to, I have to dump it. You know, mm. um, I, I felt that a little bit, but I continue to go through the motions and stayed faithful to my religious background all through that, uh, episode through that time. Uh, and then I was able, thankfully, and I think this is going to be true of everybody, uh, eventually. So for some, it takes a bit longer, I believe. But I think that eventually there's a fusion. There's, there's, you come back and there's a kind of a, you can reconnect the new experience of the relationship I have with, with who, is, who is my higher power, my God today, mm-hmm. with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I had been praying to. Right praying about, you know, living in uh, my religious uh, existence. And we, I kind of fused them back. And today, um, everything I do uh, is just being done with a different emphasis, perhaps. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I study. I study scripture. I study, you know, Talmud, as we call it. Mm-hmm. Um, today, when I study it, it's, part of, it's, it's something that I think of as my step 11. Mm. You know, because every day... I need and want to grow my relationship to, to God, 
my father in heaven. And the way I do that is to study his word, to study what he's given us, what he's brought down into this world through Sinai or whatever you want to call revelation. Right. And, and I want to have that greater experience of him. And the way I do that is by trying to learn more about what he's shared with us about who he is mm. and how the, you know, his existence. And I see that through science and, and, the, and the wonderful miracles of nature that I can see today. And I look upon it as, wow, you know, God made a butterfly. You know, God made a cocoon that turns into a butterfly. I, I always saw that. I knew that as a little boy, but I think I look at it in a different way today mm. because it's all about reminding me on a daily basis that I need to have and reestablish a commitment and a connection to him every day of my life. And that is the way that I can stay in my recovery so that I can, you know, and it's a priority that I think supersedes my life, the rest of my life. If I stop breathing, it's like stopping this connection. You know, mm. I, I need to have all of that in order so that I can have a wife, so that I can have relationships with children, I can have patients, I can have a community. This is, it's a prerequisite. It, it's, it's a stand, it's the foundation of my existence today. Okay, so this is where we're going to leave off here and pick up the rest of this conversation on Thursday, January 16th is when it will release. So there you have it. If you felt something in your heart or mind that is motivating you to act on it, whether that be to share this episode or this entire series of the Journey Through Life podcast with a loved one, or to start taking some steps yourself to get a personal shortfall strengthened, please, I ask you, act on it. Reach out to someone. Get help. It can and will make all the difference in your life. Now for the housekeeping part of the program. Please go and check us check us out on Facebook and Instagram at, at JTL Podcast. Like and follow us. Check us out online at www.jtlpod.com. Drop us a note about your own experiences, strength, and hope at the JTL Podcast at gmail.com. Or visit our sponsors, who I purposely did not put at the beginning of this episode or any other for the next 12 weeks. But they are helping this podcast continue forward. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, and radfordpineshomedecor.com. Use promo code JUSTIN with A Life Untold to save 10% on your order, and JTLPOD5 at Shepherd Brackets and Radford Pines to save 5% on your orders there. And as a heads up, the final part of step two, once again, will come live on Thursday. January 16th. If you found meaning and helpful information in this first half, you will definitely find that in the second half. These conversations that I have recorded in this journey in recovery have been life-changing for me as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning, and I am definitely becoming a different and, I think, better person for it. Have a good week and press forward one day at a time. Mm-hmm.